Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss the news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host for this episode, Matt Smith. No one ever said that being a foreign correspondent was an easy job. Always interesting, perhaps, but being a foreign correspondent in China in particular must be one of the more challenging posts to have. My guest today is going to talk about her experiences in this role. Lisa Murray is the China correspondent for the Australian Financial Review. She writes on news specialising in Asia, the world and trade. She's based in Shanghai and has more than 15 years experience as a journalist. Media in Australia and, and much of the Western world are facing pressing times with shrinking revenue and a changing landscape. Do you see these trends coming across in the Chinese press? I was wondering if you could tell me about their perspective with the media. Look, it's interesting. I guess China's media landscape is very different because it is pretty much all state-owned. So uh, theoretically, you don't have the same margin pressures that, say, a Fairfax Media, which owns the Australian Financial Review, would have and does have in Australia. At the same time, while there's around 2,000 newspapers here, while they are expected to tow the Communist Party line and the government line, and there's very, very strict censorship guidelines around that, some of the big subsidies that those publications were getting from the government have been reduced. Mm. So they are relying a little bit more on advertising, on circulation. And you have seen a little bit of reporting about some cutbacks on journalists and papers, but nowhere near what you have probably seen in places like Australia. I get the impression sometimes in the media landscape, when you get into journalism, you don't count on working as a journalist always when you when you get out of studying it. Again, I think it's different because, you know, you're effectively a government employee working for a state-owned newspaper in China, which is, uh, you know, it's a fairly steady job, really. You're employed by the government. But, you know, as I said, they are having some pressures and they are competing on some stories around sort of Chinese entertainment and areas where they're allowed to write more freely to mm. gain viewers and readers. But there are certain areas that where they just can't go and they don't go. So I think the issues in the media industry in China is really censorship. I think that's what keeps editors awake at night, self-censorship, censorship, not so much those profit margin pressures that we might see in the West. How much of a conflicted role is it? Because you'd be there going, okay, how much of a journalist am I or how much of a mouthpiece am I? Yeah, look, it's an interesting question. I think there are very good investigative journalists in China. You know, you see it where they are allowed to report. There's some great reporting done on, I've seen things like natural disasters where, you know, Global Times, which is a very hawkish newspaper, mm. their reporters on the ground do terrific reports about what's going on, very disasters and earthquakes. And they're clearly very strong reporting skills there, but they're just very constrained in what they can report on. You know, there's obviously the obvious taboos, the three Ts, Tiananmen, Taiwan and Tibet. But it goes beyond that. And probably where they're most constrained is that you really can't write about Communist Party officials or their wealth or their families. That's that's absolutely no-go area. So I think that there are some publications that are, are more liberal and that push back at times against the censorship directives. But generally, it's sort of expected that you will, you will follow those guidelines. Mm. How is your role different then as a foreign correspondent? So the foreign press are, are treated a lot differently. China's main focus is on 
guiding and governing and regulating what reporters within China can see. Mm. So because we're writing for an international audience, that's less of an issue for them. Mind you, there there are issues. Uh, you know, foreign journalists have to apply for visas every year. And there have been cases where journalists who've written articles critical of or investigating Communist Party officials' wealth, their visas have not been renewed or their publications visas have not been renewed. I mean, the two obvious ones are Bloomberg and the New York Times. So both in 2012, Bloomberg did a big expose on the um, the wealth of Xi Jinping's extended family and the, the site was blocked and then they had trouble with visas. And the New York Times did a story on Wen Jiabao's mm. family and his wealth and they also had a little bit of trouble with visas. So, so they do have ways to try and impact what, what you might write. To discourage stories yeah, that they don't but like. I think generally, you know, generally people tr- still try and be fairly fearless when it comes to reporting on that stuff. And if you find it out, you know, uh, the good publications, and as I said, those reports by Bloomberg and, and the New York Times covered those issues. So I think as a foreign journalist, it's more about access to news and to people that is very challenging here mm. and very different to other other places where you might report. There was a survey of foreign correspondents recently, which said that uh, I think 72% of responders said that they experienced some sort of interference with reporting. And it's a very kind of broad term when you use the word interference, I suppose. But is that number sort of realistic for when you talk about trying to do your job? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think particularly when you travel around China, there are restrictions. One example I could give is uh, recently I travelled to Sichuan province, to Kangding City, mm. um, which is a fascinating story, actually, that it's it's become a Bitcoin mining hub because the big Bitcoin miners have supercomputers which need cheap electricity and cool climate. And there's all these underused hydropower projects up in the mountains around Kangding City. So so we went up there to talk to a lot of people. It was a fascinating day sort of going around and talking to people who were involved in Bitcoin mining. After dinner at about 10 o'clock at night, a Navy sort of van passed us, slowed down and eventually stopped. And we were surrounded by police cars and you know, about eight policemen got out of the car and they started videoing us and they took us back to the station and we were told to delete photos. And And this is not an exceptional event, I might add, that I know it's happened to, to other, other journalists. And after a few hours, we were allowed to go after we deleted a lot of photographs of our phone and, and camera. They said that we were meant to report with the local police station when we arrived, which is, is not necessarily true in the rules. But I think to some degree, when you're traveling around China, they just don't know what to do with foreign journalists yeah right uh, so there is that um straight to the sort of extreme case where you get taken to the police station and asked what you're doing and and all Mm. sorts of things um and also i think as we've discussed the domestic media is is very censored so the way you treat journalists and what journalists are expected to do in this country is very different than what they might be expected to do in australia so so yes i think that number would probably be right there is a lot of interference and generally access, as I said, is very difficult in China. Yeah. Have you seen journalism in China changing in the time that you've been here? You said you came here just as Xi Jinping was coming into power and and China's changed a lot in that time. And I was wondering what your take on the journalism landscape is, is yeah. in that you know relatively short amount of time, really. 
Absolutely. I think one of the most dramatic changes I have seen is that when we arrived here, it was a really exciting time online. So we arrived and Weibo, which is the sort of internet word for microblogs, people were becoming very bold and very brave in what they would say online. This is within China. Within China. Mm. And uh, it was sort of exciting. It felt like you were on the cusp of something and the internet was going to take journalism to a place it had never been in this country. There were political commentators saying things that hadn't been said before. Weibo was a great way for us as foreign journalists to be able to you know, just get the logistics of where protests might be held or to take the pulse of public opinion on certain issues. There was a lot of complaints about corruption and environmental pollution online. It was really exciting. And I remember thinking at the time, there's no way China can stop this. And actually, I have been quite astounded at how successful the government has been at closing down a lot of that forum for public discussion. Mm. And I think the way they did that was during the last five years, you've also seen the rise of WeChat, which is a messaging app. And uh, I think more than a quarter of a billion people have WeChat now. And a lot of people get their news from WeChat. They download news applications and they share news with their friends. But it's often been described to me as going from Weibo, which was like, you know, a big announcement in the town square, to WeChat, which is like your lounge room. So it's much easier to control. It is censored, and so things will be quickly censored on WeChat. And a lot of those microbloggers have been really shut down. There's been various laws introduced, making it a crime to spread a rumor and making it easier to censor internet sites. And actually, I have been quite amazed at how they've been able to close off that, which was a rich vein of great stories and reporting and open discussion. Mm. And I don't think that's there now. I think it has definitely become very closed off. Yeah. WeChat is sometimes called the alternative social media in China as much as as something like that can be. It's the only real alternative to, to Facebook and Twitter that you can get to without a VPN in this country, I suppose. Does that change how you as a journalist works? Because I, I know that social media has become a huge part of how journalism is uh, pushes stories and is marketed. And I know of some news outlets that uh, when you go for a job interview, you, if you have less than a thousand followers on Twitter, they kind of, you know, you go to the bottom of the pile a bit. So does that change how you in particular as a, as a foreign correspondent works? Uh, I guess the biggest change for us with WeChat really is people don't swap business cards anymore. They scan WeChat codes. That's how you keep in touch. For the Australian Financial Review sort of sending stories over WeChat, it's I've found stories of mine that have been shared around various mm. WeChat groups. Yeah. Um, and it does, it is how people share news and share interesting links. Definitely as a networking tool, it is the primary networking tool in China. You do not swap business cards. You scan your code, you hand over your phone and you communicate via WeChat. That's just how it's done. You pay for everything via WeChat. It is quite extraordinary how um, much it is involved in everyday life here. I was wondering how being a foreign correspondent, if you've had any reaction to being a female correspondent in China, and if there's any gender problems that have been associated with it. 
Uh, I don't, not, not necessarily. I mean, there's a lot of uh, banquets are big in China. So that's how business deals are done. That's how people are welcomed to particularly smaller places. You know, the mayor will have a banquet and uh, and everyone will be toasted and there's a lot of gumbe, a lot of drinking, a special baijiu, which is a rice wine, which is quite strong. And I think as a female, you, I don't really want to do too much of that, but you probably are a little bit excluded in a way. It's a bit of a blokey culture mm. in that way. But no, in terms of other reporting, I don't think I have found any particular challenge here that is different to what I would experience in Australia. Finally, when you're writing stories and you're writing them for the Australian audience, what do you what do you look for over in China? What do you know will interest the audiences there? I guess everyone's interested in China. You know, mm. we wake up every day and think, how has China changed the world today? It touches everything. For our audience, for the Australian Financial Review audience, China is the swing factor in most markets there are. Mm. Um, it's our biggest trading partner. A third of our exports go to China. If anything happens in China, it matters to Australia. So we have no problem finding stories here. Some of the more interesting stories are about what business people and entrepreneurs are doing up here. There's, you know, Wheat Bix has suddenly become a household name here because an actress ate a bowl of wheat bix on a popular TV soap drama. <laughs> um, Blackmores went from selling 3,000 tubes of vitamin E cream to 130,000 tubes of vitamin E cream a month after Fan Bingbing, another famous actress, accidentally dropped a tube out of her bag. You know, there's things like that that China really can significantly change things. But you also write about the way China constrains things. So there's the regulatory environment, mm. the, the way regulations can change for e-commerce for products coming in. You write about, you know, the legal system here is opaque and is controlled by the Communist Party and there have been Australians that have been on the wrong side of that. So we tend to definitely cover China with Australian eyes, but anything that happens here is news in Australia. It is inextricably linked with Australia. It's our most important economic trading partner and it affects every other geopolitical relationship we have. So mm. really every story is important in Australia and we have seen that demand coming from the paper. Yeah, yeah. It must be a very busy job. Yes, <laughs> yes. Very interesting too. Yeah. That's Lisa Murray, foreign correspondent for the Australian Financial Review in China. And you've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please leave a review there and tell your friends about it. You can follow Lisa Murray on Twitter. She's at lmurray75. And you can also follow me. I'm at NightlightGuy. That's all today from the podcast. So until next time, I'm Matt Smith. And thanks for listening. <laughs>